Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Aparuta de sangamatasa tawara E sorvanta bamunjantu satang. So on this chance to reflect, listen to the sound of my voice, how it affects you. The, what I say, the words I use, <clears throat> just to be the witness to the way it is. So this is a, I like to give these things rather than teachings and more reflections too, because this is the kind of way the Buddha taught was reflecting on the way it is, not telling you how it should be or wanting his disciples to believe that he knows so how it is and they should believe it. But the teachings of the Buddha are always pointing to the experience of human, being a human being in a vast universe, being born, growing up, getting old, sickness, death. This is the experience that we all are having. So today, when we're leaving the Arogakuti, I thought it's a cold, wet, rainy day, a beautiful, cold, wet, rainy day, because most people say it's cold and wet and gray. So I deliberately challenged, saying it's beautiful, cold, gray, wet winter day in England is like this. And so this is a way of training yourself, of opening to the way it is, rather than just reacting to how it affects you emotionally. So on a personal level, like warm sunny days, yesterday when Lumpur Piek visited, it was nice weather, we were very glad that, that he came to Amravati on a beautiful sunny day. And then today, he's not coming, so it's rainy and wet. So this is just like the English winters, people complain about them. And when I first came to live in England, I did the same thing. I'd been living in, in Thailand for so many years in tropical countries in Malaysia and Thailand. So, so uh, then uh, I made a determination when we were living in London to not grumble about anything. Because personally, I, my mind grumbles. And I listen to it and I listen to the in Thailand, I listened to it grumble, and then here in, in England, 
living in London, in a townhouse in London, busy international city after living so many years in Northeast Thailand. But the, <clears throat> I could see, I could witness this tendency to grumble about things or being an American in England is, you know, the Americans have a kind of conceit about themselves, about their culture, and the, the English have very, can be very conceited about theirs. And so one can, you know, be offended or, or one can impose one's American attitudes on everybody. But when you listen, when you pay attention to what you're actually feeling, you begin to see the uh, stupidity of just reacting out of habit. So grumbling was, uh, was a determination I made in the very beginning of my stay in the UK. And so you can't just willfully stop grumbling. You know, I'm not going to grumble, but I became a, a, a witness to the way my habitual tendencies grumble about things. So that which is aware of grumbling isn't, doesn't grumble. Grumbling is a, is a habit of not wanting things to be like this or thinking it could be better or it's better somewhere else, so, uh, on and on like that. So I just learned to listen to my, my emotional habits, my reactive tendencies. <clears throat> so when we <clears throat> moved to Chithurst, you know, it was a very beautiful place. But then the Chitter's house was a derelict house, big stone mansion that was falling apart. And uh, we'd been living in, in London for two years, so we were very happy to be there. But the conditions were very basic. You know, it was actually a dangerous situation because uh, there was so much dry rot and decay in the house that <clears throat> uh, one side of the house, the floor, <clears throat> or the shrine room is now in the, in the house, Jitter's house, a floor had fallen into the cellar below. And so that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, and they had all these uh, you go in the cellar itself and it was just filled with these big, ugly, dry rot mushrooms reeking with some kind of unpleasant stench. And one could grumble about it because it was substandard conditions to live in and it even could be considered dangerous. But... Um, training myself in London not to grumble, what well, paid off, because I quite 
enjoyed living in this decaying mansion in West Sussex. So what is it that is aware of grumbling? Because we all know when, we, when we're being, when we're complaining about life or grumbling about the weather or not being appreciated or all the ways that we can be offended or hurt or complain, there's so much in any experience in life itself that to grumble about. Because they say life is beautiful, life is wonderful, but it's also horrible. You have both extremes. You have the beautiful sunny days and the cold, wet, freezing weather, and this is just the way life is on this, in this realm that we're experiencing through these forms. So wanting it to be otherwise, you can think of a perfect uh, situation, but there's no place on earth that's perfect. So, you know, in the tropical areas, there's a kind of danger of floods, and then in the Caribbean, which is held up as a kind of tropical paradise, uh, cyclones and tornadoes and, and all kinds of weather conditions that are beyond our control happen. So even paradise can be a, a living hell. And this is not to complain about it, but to just reinforce it with wisdom the way we experience life. Life is not going to be an easy ride for any of us. It's not going to be completely successful and understanding and what we want, but it is the way it is. And then that's the Buddha's teaching, to really recognize the way it is. It's like this. Today is like this, sitting here in the temple is like this. And how you're receiving what I'm saying is like this, rather than saying it's interesting or it's not or uh, whatever. You want to make comments about what you're hearing. Listen, just listen to, uh, you know, that it's, your ex the experience you're having is like this and you kind of open up to the, the present moment in a way that you don't when you're just criticizing or judging or thinking about you like it or don't like it or you want it or don't want it. So I like to emphasize the importance of reflecting on the first three fetters. And uh, in these ten fetters that, that to arahantship, this is a, these are teachings of the Buddha or reflections, maybe. Buddha was more pointing to the way things are, so using the fetters as not as kind of doctrinal teachings you must believe in, but to use, to understand, to learn from. So the first fetter, of course, is the ego, the sense of I am this body, this person. I am a separate person from you. 
and uh, and that's how we've been conditioned to to uh, through education, through our social experiences, through our families, our mother and father. We always, you know, the idea of being separate, being individual, is very much a part of Western ideas, customs, to ex emphasize the specialness or the, the lack of being special or the individuality and identifying yourself always in some category. And so, I, you know, ask yourself, are you really the body? You know, you can be aware of your body. What is it that's aware of the body sitting like this? Is the, the body aware of itself or if you're asleep, you're, you're not aware of your body? But awakened state now is like you're aware and that's consciousness being aware of you point to to the body you're experiencing right now sitting sitting in this way it's like this whether it's pleasant unpleasant painful or comfortable or not is not the issue anymore because sitting in pain is like this or sitting comfortably is like this you're not you're not trying to to uh, find the perfect posture where you can sit for an hour listening to me talk in perfect comfort and ease, but sitting at this moment, at this here and now experience is like this. And it leaves you open because you, you know when I say exactly how do you feel right now, ask any one of you about sitting what are you going to say? You're going to st stop and start thinking about words that convey the, the experience of sitting as you, you are conditioned to think or create words and concepts. But there's no word for it, like sitting in this chair talking through this microphone is like this. And you say, Ajahn Sumedho, what's it? What is it like for you sitting in the chair talking to a microphone? <laughs> and I wouldn't know how to answer that question. <laughs> and trying to think of words, appropriate words, to tell you, but but it is the way it is. It's like this. So this kind of wide open awareness. Is, is a way to develop the path to Nibbana. Not trying to get Nibbana as, some, as you imagine it. You know, you all have read the scriptures, the suttas, and, and uh, when you ordain, you realize Nibbana. What, you know, that's the point of this life, is to realize Nibbana. Well, what is Nibbana? You know, so you think it, it's something you've got to get. That's how the thinking mind operates. You think, 
I'm going to live this life of a samana in order to realize nibbana, and then that's a skillful thought, admittedly. But it is still just thinking that you are something, somebody that hasn't realized nibbana, that is some ideal state that you've got to get through hard work, through meditation, through concentration, through commitment, through letting go of everything, with all kinds of ideas about meditation. And, and the thinking mind creates these images of Nibbana is some state we've got to get as a person. Who has realized Nibbana? Has Ajahn Sumedho realized Nibbana? Did Ajahn Chah realize Nibbana? And, and he can question a doubt and, and wonder whether anyone can realize Nibbana? I remember one time in Wat Bapong years ago, some some monks from the town of Uborn came and they said, it's no longer possible to realize Nibbana. He said, no, nobody can be an Arahant now. And so Lumpur Chak said, why, why are you ordained then? You just want a free meal. So, <laughs> and maybe that's why you ordained. <laughs> At least, you know, this is, this is just a view of somebody who, who thinks that it is some very special state that was available at the time of the Buddha when so many of his disciples became arahants. And, uh, and then this age is materialistic and it's different and it's full of technology and complicated conditions and we're different. and. Nobody can realize Nibbana. This was said by a Thai monk, not a Westerner. But then Nibbana is a word that, uh, you know, is like uh, one sage defined it as like rice that has been cooked that you put aside to cool. So nibbana can be seen as a cool state of being. And this wide open awareness, where you suddenly open yourself wide open, just being aware that's like this. You know, without trying to figure out whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or right or wrong, or, or even you get caught in doubt, like this, what do you mean it's like this? And that you can listen to that. Your, your thinking mind doesn't like to be stopped or um, blocked in any way because we're, we're educated human beings to think, 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 think and have solutions, have def definitions for nibbana or consciousness or dhamma. We want, what is the Dhamma? We want to define it. But this wide open awareness, conscious awareness, is here and now. It's not something, some difficult practice imposed on you that you have to develop. It's learning to trust it, to learn to 
to use this in your life here at Amravati or wherever you live to to take time out just to to be the witness to to the experience you're having in the present is like this. Or Sakya Ditti, the ego, is the first fetter, and this doesn't like to be, it doesn't, doesn't know how, the way it is. You can't, you know, the ego has views about sitting, standing, walking, lying down, about practice, about Buddhism, about Dhamma, about meditation. You've read scriptures, suttas, investigated all kinds of teachings, non-dualistic teachings, and you have a lot of knowledge but wide open awareness is unknowing. It doesn't know anything. It's just completely free from concepts, from conditioning. And so it's a relaxed state. of It's not something you tense up to open wide, but a sense of relaxing, embracing the moment is like this. Well, you begin to see how your ego doesn't know what to do with that. You want me to give you a real strict method of concentration and gradual development in order to, for, for you to get something you desire in the future that you conceive as a desirable object in the future. What, what do you ordain as a monk or none in order to get enlightened. What is enlightenment? You know, it's certainly desirable in, in terms of the words. Because none of us as people, as personalities, feel we're enlightened. You know, we're not conditioned to 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 conceive ourselves as enlightened. That would be, unless you're a narcissist or some kind of uh, egomaniac. But uh, most of us, do I feel enlightened as a person? No. My personality I realize we'll never get enlightened because it's conditioned. It's a phenomenon that's conditioned, and it it isn't. It doesn't have any, you know. It's it's just an empty phenomena. And what is a witness to the personality to the ego? is apparent here and now, timeless. So what is that? You know, when you try to think about apparent here and now and timeless, try to imagine timelessness. You know, and just try to create images of timelessness because everything that we identify with out of ignorance of Dhamma, out of the awakened here and now 
open consciousness is is unenlightened like all your desires for enlightenment are not enlightenment are not enlightened so what is enlightenment but seeing through the illusions of conditioning the sakyaditi the ego the personality view however you want to define it in English <clears throat> because you are a witness to your personality. You know, you say, well, I'm like this. I can't help it. I have problems. I have emotions. I, and we like to analyze ourselves, go back to our past and our emotional traumas in childhood and youth and disappointments in life and endlessly get fascinated by trying to to analyze our personalities. Why am I like this? Why, why do I have to be like this? And then I start thinking about how I'd like to be and uh, how I, and who's to blame for my uh, problems at this time, you try to look into your past, the disappointments, the experiences, unpleasant, unwanted, horrific experiences of your past, and they've all formed your character, your personality, which they do. Child abuse and traumas are, you know, affect us very profoundly as, as a person, as separate individuals. So when we've had a lot of disappointments, broken heart, uh, being criticized, being blamed, being uh, rejected by society, by families, by friends, you know, these are all painful, unwanted experiences that we can experience. And, and if we aren't aware, we tend to carry these through memory memories of the past, and, and they can create an endless sense of lack of self-worth or who's, who's, who's to blame for my misery at this time. If I'd had uh, perfect uh, parents and schooling and all the right things, I wouldn't be the, have these emotional problems right now. Who's to blame for it? And so this personality it's not, you can listen to it, it's, some of it's very good, some of it's foolish, or one can even, even have very evil thoughts or ra terrible thoughts come into one's consciousness. I remember an experience when I was about nine years old I was riding on public transport in Seattle and I was standing up in a group of adults. The, the, the bus was crowded and I had this terrible, horrible thought, evil, nasty thought, and it scared me. And so, I thought, I took it personally. I thought, I must be an evil boy. I must really be an evil boy to have such evil thoughts. 
So that scared me. I thought there's something evil inside me that I that that manifests. I don't, you know, there's nothing done to me on this on this bus on this transport. But standing in a group of of adults who are all taller, bigger than I was, or was somebody you know one picks up when you're a child you're quite innocent you're not experienced in life you can pick up the the moods and feelings of others around you atmospheres uh, and so forth so when i got older i kind of analyzed it i was probably standing in a group of criminals or monsters there's one way of looking at it which takes the kind of personal tang out of the, the memory of it. But memory is like that. You know, you can't help but remember traumas of the past or broken hearts or disappointments or disillusionments, personal betrayals and, and on and on like that. It's, 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 that's what memory does. It's, it's hold, you hold to memories, then you get caught in the mood that they bring. So memory, then, in terms of here and now, is like this. Whatever it's a pleasant memory, unpleasant memory, doesn't matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, but it is like this. Pleasant memories are like this. Unpleasant memories are like this. So a cold, rainy, wet winter day at Amravati is like this. And you're not suffering from it. You know, there's no suffering in accepting life as it happens. So cold, wet, rainy days are not the cause of my suffering today. Because I, I can think, why. Well, prefer a warm sunny day, but then, that, then I start suffering because suddenly I'm no longer with the present. I'm not open to the way it is. I'm wanting something that isn't the way it is at this time. So this, they call it the wide open unknowingness is what I am. It's not something I know. So you can't know unknowing, wide open unknowingness, but that's what, what the state of being aware is. It's wide open unknowingness. You're open to experience that you're having in the present, it's like this. Without judging it, without adding to it, of, uh, or, or when you do, when you do add criticisms or uh, uh, concepts, you're aware of it. You're aware how your intellect will create problems about the way it is. So the ego is not to be trusted. You know, we can take, you know, so much of what we experience in modern society is very egotistical. We hear all these celebrity stars and 
and gurus and preachers and uh, so much uh, and politicians giving us uh, opinions and views right on the right or the left and so this is uh, this has its effect on us when you listen to somebody else complaining or uh, disparaging something, when somebody uh, disparages Amravati, you know, he can feel very angry. So we can get very righteous. We can have got to stand up for Amravati no matter what. And, and um, that's very brave and bravado. But the path is not standing up for Amravati, but listening to, being aware of these reactions, of being indignant or angry when somebody criticizes something and you respect or love is like this. Then the second fetter, Sakyaditi Bharamasa, Silabhattabharamasa is, uh, is a conditioning. Like we're conditioned, our personalities are conditioned. They're not real persons. They're not kind of souls, kind of eternal souls, or, or have any real center or essence of, of permanency. What we consider ourself is our personality, which is an illusion, and our beliefs. We believe in Buddha Dhamma, or believe in Jesus Christ, or believe in, in conservative politics, or liberal politics, or we believe in, in uh, you know, that there's evil forces surrounding Amaravati, or we can believe anything. We're told all kinds of, of stories and illusions through the mass media, through the society we live in. So we, you know, they affect us emotionally. We can't help it, but we, we, you're now using wisdom rather than just operating from personal conditioning. Wisdom is universal, it's not personal. And the way to wisdom is by actually opening to, to experience, because experience is here and now. The past is not an experience, that's a memory. The future, you can't experience the future. You can imagine or plan for it, but you can experience it here and now. And this is, this is the reality of our human state in these human forms, is that they're here and now, breathing, pulsating conditions that we identify with, our hearts beating, our breath going in and out. We see, hear, smell, taste, touch, we think, 
And we're caught in the illusion through education, through social, cultural conditioning to believe that this, this I am a separate person experiencing the here and now. So these, these pronouns, I and me and mine, they're really insidious. You think of my, it's my space, that's my kuti, that's my robe, that's my place, my, that's mine. And somebody tries to move into my space, I get angry. I say, get away from me, get out of my space, because I'm very attached to having my own private space, and I can create myself into a monster just through believing my thoughts or emotional reactions to experience here and now. But in the wide open unknowingness, this gives you perspective on your emotional habits, on your conditioning. So like in terms of the Samana Sangha, the Vinaya is conditioning. It's form. Like this morning, we, the Padimoka was recited here. And this is a custom, it's a condition. So it's, it's uh, you know, an experience, it's a memory now. For the bhikkhus, we remember, it was a Padimoka this morning, it was like this. And so then we've got views about Padimoka, is it, you know, sitting there for an hour listening to somebody chant in, in a Pali language that we don't understand. And, um, you know, we can have certain views and we think it's, it's the Buddha's teaching. And we can have, I've heard monks say, uh, these rules are outdated. Uh, these precepts, we think of them as rules or commandments. And um, you've got to submit, surrender to, the, to these precepts and on and on, kind of advice like that can be, it can be true but not right, right but not true. So the conditioned phenomena is like this. The, this tradition is like this. Amarbhati is like this. I'm not saying it's the best or it's, it's absolutely what the Buddha would want, but it is the way it is. And in this way, you know, the tradition itself, and I was thinking this morning while listening to the Padimoka, that, you know, the Sangha, it holds together this group of different people, different personalities, different nationalities. And, you know, without this Padimoka, we would, could we live as a Sangha? Could, because the form is, we agree, is what we agree to when we ordain. 
you, you ask that to be received into the form, the Sangha then admits you into it. So then this form is what we agree. It's about action and speech. It's not about thoughts or beliefs. So we conform as best we can to through action, through how we use our bodies, how we uh, we uh, speak. But uh, and so that unites us. We can live together with many many different personalities, different views, different opinions, different social backgrounds. If it wasn't, if there was no Vinaya, the, the Buddhist teaching would have been lost in time. It's this very tradition that allows this, uh, this Four Noble Truths, the Sermon of the Buddha, the path to enlightenment, realization of Nirvana. You know, you know, if you try to figure that out all just by yourself, some can do it. But then living in the world, having to live your life, the rest of your life in the Sangha is, you know, gives you a sense of relationship, of respect, fellowship, and we can learn to accept the differences in personalities and emotional habits of different monks, nuns, and and so that is, uh, you know, a way of training oneself because on the level of form, we're all different. But the form of the Vinaya is pretty much the same for all of us. It's, it's unitive, it's one. It's not about special privileges or special rights for individuals. So the conditioning is not to just conform to precepts as laid down by the Buddha, as we believe, but to use uh, precepts are not commandments. Like God gave commandments, but Buddha gave precepts, training rules, ways of training yourself, ways of learning to to open up wide to your thinking habits without being critical of them. So is uh, ordaining as a samana sila patabaramasa? Well, it, sila patabaramasa is more or less the term for social, cultural conditioning, religious conditioning. We can see ourselves as Buddhists or uh, Theravada Buddhists or uh, then there's Mahayana Buddhists and then there's Vajrayana Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists, then Buddhists, which is the best form of Buddhism and we can spend waste our lives trying to figure out which is the best. And that, what is that just thinking about, trying to figure out which, which tradition is, is better? Or is that's unnecessary, like with the Thai forest tradition, just to, 
to be aware. It's like the Thai forest tradition is like this. It's not perfect, but it's functional, it's, it's, it's practical, and it is a phenomenon in itself. It's, it's conditioning, but learning to, because they're precepts, they're guidelines, rather than fixed positions you take on every issue and every experience in life. Where Dhamma is wide open, it has no, it has no uh, structure, there's no language. But it's here and now. And when I reflect like this, I hear the silence behind the sound of my voice. This silence, I don't create it through concentrating my mind on any issue, but this silence is resonating right now while talking because it's uncreated. It's not conditioned, it's not second, it is not ego, it's not sila bhata bharamasa, it's not, there's no thought in it, it's empty, it's where thought arises and ceases, where the senses operate through consciousness, but consciousness itself can't see, hear, smell, taste, touch, or think. It's the forms that manifest in consciousness that see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. So these are what we're doing, we're sitting here, we're manifestations in consciousness. Consciousness isn't in my brain or my eyes are, are sense objects that can easily deteriorate or hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, brain damage, all that. These, the senses are very delicate conditions that can easily be damaged. But no matter how damaged they are, there's still consciousness. which never is damaged. So you begin to trust in awareness. You begin to see that, take your stand in this awareness, wide open unknowingness is opening to the experience of the moment is like this. And in this way, you, you begin to understand your, what Nibbana, what enlightenment really means. They're not states you attain. There's not some kind of ideal state that you attain through hard work, through concentration, but through opening up wide awareness, the path to the deathless. So I offer this as a reflection for today.